Go ahead and find uh, Acts chapter 17 in your Bible. Acts chapter 17. We're making our way steadily and surely in this study through Acts. Today we're coming to the 17th chapter. And I hope that you were able to read it before you came today. Uh, you'll always be able to get far more out of it when, on, on Sunday mornings if you read it ahead of time before you come and read it on your own and think through it. But if you did, you know that when we come to Acts chapter 17, it continues the account of Paul's second missionary journey. He, has, he took three over the course of his life. This second journey began at the very end of chapter 15. Uh, he and Silas were in the city of Philippi, mainly in the last chapter, chapter 16. And what we'll find in chapter 17 are... Uh, some of his encounters in three different cities, in Thessalonica, in Berea, and in Athens. It's, it's a really eventful chapter. And, and like I said last week, when you get to this section in Acts, you could, you could really almost spend a, a, a few weeks on every single chapter. So whenever you try to do it all at one time, sometimes you try to have to find a unifying theme that's running through all of these chapters. And, and as I thought about it from this chapter... Uh, the, the unifying theme that I, I saw running through it was this, salvation accomplished and applied. Uh, that's, one, uh, that's one topic that I want to think through and, and, and illustrate from this chapter, salvation accomplished and salvation applied. One thing I do like wor uh, about working through Acts a whole chapter at a time is sometimes you see themes like this that you might not ordinarily see if you were doing it verse by verse or piecemeal uh, all the way through working at a really slow pace, you might not see uh, a theme running through it like you do if you read the whole thing at one time. That's why I say, I tell you all the time, like even hard books like Leviticus, uh, you might find it hard to read through Leviticus in your uh, Bible reading plan, but I think you'll like it more if you just take, a, take an hour or so and read the whole thing all at once. You'll see repeated phrases and words and ideas that um, really make Leviticus even a cool book. And I, I've, I've noticed this. I've done, I've taught through a number of books this way. Uh, Revelation, I've taught through a chapter at a time. Or think back last year when we had our Bible reading plan and we did a, uh, we read a chapter of the New Testament every weekday and we did a short podcast on every chapter. And um, man, it's, it's really cool to see themes pop up. And I think we have some of that here in Acts 17. So we need to read the chapter and then we'll see some truths in it that teach us something about salvation accomplished and applied. Start reading in verse 1 and read the whole chapter. Now, when they, the they here uh, would be Paul, Silas, and Timothy, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. Jason apparently was a supporter of the missionaries. Attacked the house of Jason, seeking to 
bring them out to the crowd. They assumed Paul and Silas were there. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by, Peter, by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stir, stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and, and said, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for, and he quotes some of their own poets, in him we live and move and have our being as even... Some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some 
mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's pray. Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary word. And even as I read, I, a thought crossed my mind of uh, how weak I am to stand and proclaim this, your eternal word. So, Father, I pray that you would give me the help that I need to teach this morning. And, and as I teach, I pray that you would give us all ears to hear and give us minds to understand what's here and hearts to embrace and love the truth and not merely minds to know it and wills to obey and submit to whatever you teach and call us to do. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, some of what we see in this chapter, in chapter 17, uh, is similar to what we saw last week in chapter 16. And, and we, last week we talked about how Christ builds his church. We saw from chapter 16 he built, at least it, it shows three different ways that Christ builds his church. Um, we talked about through our willingness to go and bear witness to Christ in the gospel, through our perseverance in that, and also um, through his power to save. We're going to see similar themes in this chapter, which isn't surprising considering the nature of the book of Acts. So I just want to highlight some observation in this chapter and, and, and centered around two points, just two points. One, salvation accomplished, and two, salvation applied, as you could almost glean from the title. Salvation accomplished salvation applied. So let's jump in and see first what it has to teach us about salvation accomplished. Early in this chapter, Paul and Silas are in the city of Thessalonica, and as was their custom, as we've already seen in the book of Acts, we pointed out a couple of weeks ago, they go first to the Jewish synagogue. They do this in all three cities they visit in this chapter. They go first to the Jewish synagogue, preach to the Jews who are there. And aside from how those Jews in Thessalonica received this message, we'll say plenty more about that in just a minute, uh, it's, it's how Luke describes the message that Paul preached in that synagogue that I want to draw your attention to first. It's so interesting. So, for example, look at verse 3, uh, Acts 17, 3. It says, Paul was explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Now, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. It, it, it was necessary for Christ to do that. Now, I think that language of necessity is, is, is well worth thinking through. It's, it's interesting. He says it was necessary for Jesus to do those things. We pray every time we open these scriptures. I prayed it just now. That I, I pray it so much that you could probably say it yourself, and that's intentional. That every time we open the, these scriptures, it is the inspired, inerrant word of God. And so everything, every word, every syllable, every phrase, every sentence, every paragraph, every chapter, every, it's, it's all true and important. And, and so if we open it up here, and, it, and it's recorded for us that it was necessary, 
for Jesus to suffer and die and rise again, then we need, we need to understand precisely what does it mean that, that it was necessary for him to do that. Because I say that because there is a very real sense in which it was not necessary for him to do that. Not necessary. Consider what we read in passages like Isaiah 40, verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before the Lord. They are accounted by Him as less than nothing and emptiness. Now, that sounds rather harsh, but it, 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 what it's communicating is that God in and of Himself is self-sufficient. He, is, he, is, he has no inherent need of us. He's the Creator. He's God. He's the Lord. He wasn't lonely. That's not why He created us. He's self-sufficient. That's exactly what other passages say. Psalm chapter 50, verses 10 through 12. God himself says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, he tells his people, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. What those, these verses and, 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 and tons of others that we don't have time to look at tell us that God is God. He is completely self-sufficient. That's part, that's part of what we call the doctrine of God's aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity. He is ase. He is of himself. He just exists. No one created him. He just is. God is. Jesus said, I am. Right? He's the creator. We're the creature. He needs nothing from us. We add nothing to him. Which is why from, the van from that vantage point, there's a very real sense in which he had no necessity. There was no compulsion either to create us in the first place, nor to save us when we run astray. I think we can and should all agree with that. But it doesn't change the fact that Paul here says that in a very real sense, it was necessary for Jesus to suffer and to rise from the dead. So if, if God is totally self-sufficient and has no inherent need of us, and let's go a step further and say, if God is holy and just and our sins deserve no forgiveness, then in what way was it necessary? Scripture says it was in some sense. In what way then was it necessary for Jesus to die and rise again? The answer is because of the fact that God is not only self-sufficient and He's not only holy and just, He is good and loving. And as particular expressions of, those, of good and loving, He is merciful and gracious. Mercy and grace are not, strictly speaking, sort of... Uh, proper attributes to say of God himself to whom would among the trinity would God be merciful or gracious that's in respect to a creation so he is good by nature he is loving by nature and once he has creatures and once he they have sinned particular expressions of good and loving he is merciful and gracious to us so even though God has no inherent need for anything or anyone else. Nevertheless, out of, out of his goodness and love, he voluntarily chose graciously 
to save those whom he freely created out of their chosen sin and misery. And once he freely decides to save, at that moment it becomes necessary for Jesus both to die and to rise again. In Christian theology, there are two different kinds of necessity. We're jumping in the deep end of the pool for just a minute. There's two different kinds of necessity, and they are called absolute necessity and consequent necessity. There is no absolute necessity for, him, for Christ to come and do any of these things. There is no absolute necessity. But once he freely decides to save, there is now a consequent necessity for Jesus to die and rise. It's now a necessity that is a consequence of his decision to save. Because that's the only way anyone could be saved from the heinous and eternal consequences of our sin and rebellion. We deserve death. We deserve eternal separation from God because of our sins. So why was it necessary? To save us from an eternal punishment, the eternal son had to come and take on our flesh and through his death, he could bear as the eternal son, he could bear in a moment what it would take us an eternity to bear in hell. And furthermore, he had to rise from the dead to ensure the certainty of our eternal life and that the penalty of our sins had been paid in full. It was in that sense necessary for Jesus to suffer and to rise from the dead. And Jesus has done what was necessary. That's what I want to think about. Salvation accomplished. It's accomplished. Jesus has done what was necessary and has purchased the pardon of God for everyone who repents and believes. It, he has accomplished their salvation. That was the message of Paul in the synagogue that day. He didn't just make salvation probable or possible. He made it certain for everyone who repents and believes. That's the gospel he preached. That hasn't changed to this day. That is the gospel. <laughs> Salvation has been accomplished. That's the opening words of the chapter. Salvation has been accomplished. But as we think through the rest of the chapter, uh, we encounter some things that teach us also some things about how salvation is applied to us. How salvation is not only accomplished for us, but how salvation, that salvation that he accomplished, how is it applied to us? So as, our, as I mentioned, this chapter records three stops on Paul's second missionary journey. In the last chapter, he went to Philippi. Here he visits the cities of Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. And the theme that runs, that's so in your face runs through all three of these stops are the wildly different reactions he got at every city. Just wildly different responses. So he begins in Thessalonica. How does the chapter tell us that the people, on the whole, responded in Thessalonica? Well, verse 4 does tell us that some of them persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Some of them believed. And indeed they did, because a church was started there. And in fact, before the second missionary journey was over, Paul had written not one but two letters to the, that church of the Thessalonians, which we still have recorded for us in Scripture. So yeah, some believed. And a church was, was begun. But what about the vocal majority in Thessalonica? How did they respond? Basically with belligerence and violence. <laughs> Verse 5 says that they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. I think, it, I think at the height of 
hypocrisy that they formed a mob. It says they, they took some of the wicked men of the rabble. I don't know who the rabble are, but they got them. And they formed a mob with them, and they set the city up in an uproar, and then they had the audacity to say, these men have turned the world upside down. But they did. Paul had seen this before. He'd already seen it in Philippi. Mob, city in uproar. Verse 6 says the people were claiming that Paul and Silas, like I just said, were turning the world upside down, so much so that in verse 10, in verse 10, they, it says that, that uh, Paul and Silas escaped that mob and they had to be sent out of town at night under the cover of darkness to Berea. They traveled south some 50 miles to Berea, to the next town. So here they are in Berea now. And they follow the same pattern that they had in Thessalonica, which is brave in my estimation. They go to the Jewish synagogue first. But the reaction they found there was night and day different than what they had experienced in Thessalonica. Verse 11 specifically says these Jews were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That, that word, received, they received the word, that, that Greek word could also mean they accepted it. They welcomed it. They welcomed this. That is it. And it is explicitly pointed out in this verse that this is exactly not how the Thessalonians had received it. These guys welcomed it. And not, not surprisingly, in verse 12, we're, we're told that many believed. Even some prominent Greeks as well as Jews. But then you find out that some of those unbelieving Jews from Thessalonica, they also traveled the 50 miles, 50 miles to Berea too, just to drive Paul and his companions out of Berea as well. Again, Paul had to be rolling his eyes because he had already gone through this as, as well on his first missionary journey. Do you remember back to chapters 13 and uh, 14 on his first missionary journey, how he had gone from Antioch to Iconium to Lystra, and, and it was when he was in Lystra, some Jews from both Antioch and Iconium, they traveled to Lystra, to, 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 and they stoned him there in Lystra. In fact, those that came from Antioch to Lystra traveled over 100 miles to get there just to cause trouble for Paul then. But here they are doing it again. They come 50 miles from Thessalonica just to cause trouble for Paul and Silas in Berea. But could it be more different? The Thessalonians were violently opposed to the gospel of Christ. And 50 miles away, the Bereans listened intently and welcomed the message. Many believed. Just, just take, take note of that and file it away for now. So then they go to Athens. They go to Athens. And per usual, they first go to the Jewish synagogue and they... They teach there. But the focus mainly in Acts is when they go to the Areopagus in, in Athens, which is the place where many of the, the philosophers and the thinkers would gather daily to discuss different ideas. And Paul went there, and you heard, he preached a strong message about the true and living God, creator and Lord of all that he's made, who not only invites but commands all people everywhere to repent, and come to faith in Jesus Christ who died for them and rose again. Take note of that. He now 
what does it say in verse 30? The times of ignorance he now overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. You don't have to, you don't have, and when you're sharing the gospel with someone, you don't have to come down like a, a fire and brimstone preacher, but that is the reality. God doesn't merely invite sinners to save, to, to, to repent and believe. He commands sinners to repent and believe. And that, that, that's not just a, a slight difference. There, there is a difference. If someone sends you an invitation to, to something, well, you decide to go or not go, right? And big whoop. You decide not to go, you turn down the invitation. I don't know, no, no big deal. But if you get a summons to jury duty, right, and you just don't go, or you get a summons to some legal something, you turn that down, there come with it consequences, right? This is God summoning people to repentance. That's the message he preached. There too, as soon as he finished his message, what does Luke draw your attention to? How do people respond to it? (laughs) Like he had twice already. And there's a distinction between those who heard. So look at verses 32 to 34. Now, when they heard this, uh, when they heard this, they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. There's one response. But others said, here's a second response, we'll hear you again about this. And then, so Paul went out of their midst, and here's a third response. Some men joined and believed. So as we try to put all this together, this is clearly what Paul, is, what Luke is, is trying to communicate to us. They go here, look at the response they got here. They, they went here, look at the response there. They go here, look at the response there. In Athens, some mocked it. Some wanted to hear more. Some believed. In Berea, they welcomed the message. They searched the scriptures. They believed. And in Thessalonica, some of them believed. A few of them believed but most violently drove them out of town and then traveled the requisite 50 miles to the next town to drive them out of that one too. What are we to make of this? That Paul was a terrible preacher? He had a good day in Berea, but man, he really stunk the place up in Thessalonica and Athens. Were the people in, in Berea just less sinful? what the, the the bible though makes clear that the difference doesn't lie in us and the difference doesn't lie in the preacher i'm not better than you i'm not less sinful than you are nor you anyone else i you're not better than me the bereans weren't better than the thessalonians or, or the athenians they just take a quick journey back through the whole Bible, and you'll see that that's the case. Think, think, think Genesis. After the flood, like the flood, which was never to take away sin, just to judge sinners, this is what you read in Genesis 8.21. You read that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Or the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 13.23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard's leopard its spots neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil so who's accustomed to doing evil well genesis eight twenty one says we all are and 
you can't change. <laughs> That's what he says. We're evil, and you can't change yourself. So Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's the testimony of the Old Testament. It's just as clear in the New Testament. Paul says in Romans 3.12, no one does good, not even one. That's quoting the Psalms, Psalm 53. Only to go on a few verses later in Romans 3.23 to say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? It doesn't mean that you have failed to be as glorious as God is. It means you have failed to glorify God as he deserves. So have I. All of us have. If there's any ambiguity left, Paul said in Ephesians 2, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. So the Bereans weren't less dead than the Thessalonians. Nor the Athenians. Those who believe that, that small cadre of people in Thessalonica they weren't better than the rest of the Thessalonians so what's the difference God is the difference and we don't we don't question his ways but it couldn't be clearer we've already seen this in Acts we've seen it in chapter 13 when the Jews rejected he turned to the Gentiles and it specifically says those who were appointed to eternal life believed chapter 14 he goes down to the river, finds some ladies praying. Lydia believes. Why? Because God opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. But even elsewhere, not just in, in Paul's doings and writings with Luke and, and Acts, think, think elsewhere where Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What's he saying there? The Spirit Moving among people can be compared to the wind blowing. That's what he's saying. He had already told Nicodemus, unless one is born of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. But then the moving of the Spirit is kind of like the wind blowing. You, you can't call for the wind to come. You can't make the wind blow. You can't dictate where it blows. You don't have any control over the wind. You can't see it. You can't see the wind can't beckon the wind, but you know when the wind's blowing because you know the effects of it. You see leaves moving. You hear it. You feel it. So it is with the Spirit, Jesus says. Why did some believe in Thessalonica, but most didn't? Not because some were better, but because the Spirit moved in them, and you saw the difference in their life. And this chapter is not meant to teach us, though, that God... Moves among a few, leaving the rest to perish. No. This, this chapter is also meant to tell us, teach us that God, by His Spirit, moves in all sorts of people to repent and believe. All sorts of people. I mean, think about this. Think of, this, this chapter not only just describes that, that, that God moves among people and that's why they believe, but notice how this chapter highlights the indiscriminate grace of God. The indiscriminate grace of God in the sense that unique from, from unique in that day specifically, over and over again he says that not just the men believed, but women believed. Women believed. He says it over and over again. He says it in verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. He says in verse 12, 
Many of them therefore believed, and not, and not a few Greek women of high standing. And the last verse of the chapter. So Paul went out of their midst in Athens because some men joined and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. The, the, the first century devalued women heavily. In, in, in Roman culture, women could not testify at a trial. They were not to be believed. Which is why it's significant in the resurrection accounts that women were the first with the message that Jesus has risen from the dead. That's evidence that somebody didn't just make up this story because no one would make up that story in the first century. If you wanted it to believe, don't say a woman said it. That's what they would say. But that's what happened. Counter to intuition. And now... When, when women were not highly, at least in, in, in religious matters, women were not highly valued, here you, you go, and, and every town you go to, you are highlighting that it wasn't just men, it was also women. God's indiscriminate grace. Same is true in all three places. So when, it's, when it comes to salvation accomplished and applied, it's not as if God accomplished salvation and then leaves it leaves the application of it up to us no our role is paul's role here which is to bear witness to christ bear witness to the gospel scatter the seed leave the rest to god we sow the seed god will reap his harvest that's the clear teaching of all the scriptures distilled for us in an unmistakable way in Acts chapter 17. Let's pray.